Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and joining you today from sunny, windy New York City. Um, I'm thrilled to have Yuan Yan Ang with us uh, today. She, as I was just telling her, gave me a lovely weekend by allowing me to read her new book, China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption. It was such a pleasure to read it because at this time when there's so much discussion of China that is full of heat but very little light, this both gives us a different way to think about corruption and a lot of data relating to corruption and then the ability to analyze that data. So it's really, really a wonderful, interesting, eye-opening read. So those of you who haven't bought it yet, I urge you to buy it. Yuan Yan is a professor of political science at the University of Michigan. Her first book, How China Escaped the Poverty Trap, which was in 2016, won awards for its game-changing and field-shifting research. And if I'm any judge, Yuan Yuan, this book should win awards too, because it really got me to think about corruption and the way it works in China in a very different way. Um, I would give you her full bio, but that would take, and her, her, her various awards, but that would take up all of our time. So you've been sent the bio in advance. So let me turn it over to Yuan Yuan, who will talk for about 20 minutes, more or less. I'll ask some questions because I think the book raises tons of questions. And then we'll open it to audience questions. I see we already have a bunch of audience questions. If you have questions in the course of this discussion, uh, you can go on the Q&A function, type in your question, and please tell me who you are. I'm not thrilled with anonymous questions. I love to know who's asking. Uh, but Yunyan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for being a public intellectual of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. You were part of the fifth cohort. Uh, we now have had the sixth and soon we'll have the seventh. But it's you are fulfilling the mission of the public intellectuals program by educating Americans about China. But welcome and thank you. Thank you very much to the National Committee for having me. It's been a real honor to be on the PIP program, and I really appreciate the rich webinars that you've put together during the pandemic. I've been on the other side of the screen for many of the programs and have learned a tremendous amount. So it gives me great pleasure this time to have the opportunity to share my work with you. Um, as, uh, and, and as Steve pointed out the book again, it's called China's Gilded Age, The Paradox of Economic Boom and Vast Corruption. Um, this, is, this book tells the story of China's Gilded Age, which is the period of 40 years since 1978, a time of rapid growth and vast corruption. And a little story here connected to my first talk at the National Committee 
when my first book came out in 2016, I also gave a talk at the committee um, and Steve asked many stimulating questions about corruption. And at the time I thought I didn't have enough research and data to answer your questions. And it inspired me to go and do more research and answer them. And so thank you for inspiring this book. And I hope that today I will again benefit from everyone's comments and questions and write a third book. But let me first tell you about this, uh, this second book. Um, first, why is corruption and growth a paradox? That is because corrupt countries are usually poor, while rich countries appear to have little or no corruption. And because of this basic pattern, we have arrived at the conventional wisdom that corruption is generally bad for growth. So when we look at China's case, we see that it has the longest sustained economic expansion in modern history. But on the other hand, it has a serious corruption problem, one that the Chinese President Xi Jinping himself had said was a crisis, an existential threat to the party. Uh, when we put the two together, it appears to be a jarring puzzle. So how do we explain how China's economy has grown despite corruption? And this book makes a simple argument. Um, it argues that the reason for this is that in fact, rich countries have corruption, but the kind of corruption that exists in rich countries are of a particular type, and I call them access money, meaning they are a transactional form of corruption among elites, where the more commercial activities there are, the more rents can be collected. And over the past 40 years, what I show in this book is that China's corruption has evolved toward this type of corruption, which is the same variety found in rich countries uh, from, the, from South Korea to the United States, for example. The difference is that if you look at the US, access money is mostly legalized and institutionalized, whereas in China, it still falls under the category of personalized and illegal corruption. Um, and in China, corrupt officials get rich by promoting growth, not by stopping growth. I wanted to emphasize, however, that the book does not argue that corruption is quote unquote good. That unfortunately has been a common misreading of this book. Rather, I argue that corruption comes in different types with different harms. And the analogy I use is that of drugs. All drugs are harmful, but they do not harm in the same way. And the type of corruption that exists in China I compare them to the steroids of capitalism, right? So access money functions like steroids, producing a high growth economy, but one that is risky and imbalanced. So that is in short, a summary of the book's story. And I think I will leave more of the time to answer specific questions and to dialogue with the audience. One of the things that I had hoped to do in this book in response to Steve's comment is I strive to deliver as much data and evidence as I can, 
but um, in a way that I hope would be accessible to many people. And I feel that in this day and age, um, particularly given this age of misinformation that we live in, this is an important step to take. Um, there are a lot of good research going on, on Chinese politics, on the economy, but a lot of this research may be buried under academic language. And I feel that we have really have to liberate that and deliver it in an accessible way to a broad audience so that we can see that evidence and data is actually useful and perhaps even interesting. And for that, I want to again thank the National Committee because as part of the PIP program, the Public Intellectual Program, um, the mission of that program is to train researchers like me to reach out to the public. So I hope to have played in small part that role of using research to inform the public. Thank you. Talk to us, I guess, initially about how corruption has at times enhanced China's growth and at times stifled China's growth and how the book talks about that. So the book begins by providing a theoretical framework and it's very simple. I call it unbundling corruption. And I begin with that because normally when people write about China, they take the conventional wisdom as given. They assume that China is an outlier and then they go on to tell their stories. But what I wanted to do in this book is to begin by saying that our understanding of corruption has been flawed. It's flawed in the sense that we've been too focused on the idea of which country is more corrupt than the other. So we've been focused on overall corruption scores. And we have not paid enough attention to the different types of corruption and the fact that different types of corruption have different consequences. So the book begins by unbundling corruption into four different varieties. Um, and the uh, four different varieties, I begin with corruption with theft. So I, I make a distinction between petty theft. So a police officer, you know, who shakes you down for an extortion, you consider that a petty theft because it's a low level activity and it's a one way street. You don't get any benefit out of that corrupt activity. I distinguish that from grand theft, which is embezzlement. And a classic example is Nigeria, where billions of dollars are just siphoned out of public accounts into Swiss bank accounts. And then I make a distinction between two types of bribery. And this is an important distinction. The most common type of bribery that we all know intuitively is called speed money, meaning you pay petty bribes to get over regulatory hurdles. Right? So a low-level official tells you, if you don't pay me this bribe, I'm not going to put a stamp on your passport. So we pay these petty bribes in order to overcome a burden, um, a barrier, or a delay. But that kind of speed money is different from the fourth type of corruption, which is the focus of my book. And I call that access money. That kind of corruption is elite. It occurs at a high level. It's not extractive, rather it's transactional. You're paying a bribe, not because you're trying to overcome a delay, 
but because you're trying to buy privileges, exclusive rights, deals. And what I do in the book is to show that over the course of China's evolution since 1978, China began with all kinds of corruption. In particular, it had a serious problem with petty bribery, speed money, embezzlement was rampant, the business environment was terrible. And then by the time you came to the 1990s and 2000, a big structural evolution happened. You see that embezzlement and petty bribery steadily declined. And that was because in the 1990s, the central government decided that they had to do a big reform to create a modern regulatory state for a modern capitalist economy. So they took very determined measures to build state capacity and fight growth damaging corruption. And you actually see that in the data. You see the fall in the incidence of embezzlement and petty bribes. But at the same time, you see that bribery, massive graph involving larger sums and more senior officials skyrocketed from around 2000 onwards. And that's because markets open, you have an even more capitalist economy, a larger private sector, many more commercial activities, and all the time with government officials having tremendous power over that economy. So when you have a combination of these two structural changes, administrative reforms on the one hand and tremendous market opening on the other, you have a switch in the patterns of corruption in China arriving at the form we see today. China today um, is the type of corruption is very much dominated by high level transactional elite corruption. Um, and this is particularly striking once you compare China to the example of India, which on the whole is perceived as more or less equally corrupt as China. So if you compare their global corruption scores, most people think China are corrupt and more or less as corrupt as India. But what I show in the book is that when you actually unpack the structure of corruption, the interesting thing is that in China, the most dominant type of corruption is access money, elite transactions. Whereas in India, the most dominant corruption is petty bribery. So low level bribes that you pay to overcome hurdles. So once we understand the evolution of the structure of corruption in China, we arrive at the better understanding of why this particular type of corruption functioning as the steroids of capitalism have almost overstimulated local officials to feverishly promote growth, but at the expense of creating a host of social problems, including environmental damage, including social inequality, and various other misallocation of capital that has resulted in a Chinese economy that has grown very fast, but is risky and also imbalanced. The Gilded Age, when you call it the Gilded Age, you're obviously making a comparison to America's Gilded Age. Mm -hmm. Talk about how that, talk about that comparison in terms of corruption. I would love to because, um, you know, the title of the book was uh, very much um, inspired by the question that I received 
when I gave my first talk on how China escaped the poverty trap. And I remember that the question was, you know, if you had to pick a country that you think is the closest parallel to China, which country do you think that is? And my answer at the time was, and I think the audience's uh, answer, by the way, I think people were expecting Russia or some part of Asia. And my answer was, well, I think it's, um, you know, I think it's 19th century America. And, and, and it came kind of intuitively. And I realized with more research that indeed it had many parallels. And so that's how I arrived at the title of this book, China's Gilded Age. It was, you know, it was to, to capture a kind of intuitive response at the time. But I thought it was an apt title, particularly when I went deeper into the history of America's Gilded Age. And I found the historical parallel so striking. They are so similar that you could take a book about America's Gilded Age and just strike out the name, them with Chinese characters and names, like I did in one part of the book. The, the, the Leland Stanford part That's of right. it, it was it's <laughs> wonderful. You described that a little to the audience. It was, sure. Like, reading I, that, I went, wow. <laughs> um, so, I, so this would be a spoiler. Um, but in one part of the book, um, I, I started with a story about this uh, extremely corrupt tycoon. Um, and he got rich um, from his railway business. Um, and he gave bribes, company shares to politicians. And these politicians were very powerful because they were in charge of the Department of Budgets and Infrastructure. And these politicians um, had their families in the steel industry. So they, in a sense, um, this was a profit sharing structure because they would benefit if the corrupt businessman built railways. And over the course of this corruption, he had land grants, he had lots of cheap loans from the government and the government basically absorbed you know, all of his financial risk. And by the end of this, uh, the railways were built, but at an inflated cost. Uh, and he became enormously rich. Um, and so any person hearing this story would think, oh, this is you know, one of those stories about grotesque corruption in China. But in fact, the particular um, businessman whom I was referring to is actually Mr. Leyland Stanford. Right? So he is the railway tycoon of, um, of the 19th century. Um, and, and, and when I told the story this way, um, to really surprise the reader, on, on, um, to get them to kind of really uh, reflect on some of the um, sort of ahistorical uh, bias of some readers. They've forgotten American history, and when they read about corruption in China, they might think, oh, this is exceptional to China. So I felt it was useful to remind readers again uh, of American history uh, itself. I felt a little bad kind of using Mr. Stanford's story in this way, particularly because I attended the university that he founded. <laughs> but I thought that, in fact, at the end of, um, near the end of his life, Mr. Stanford was, um, I think I would say, almost repentant for his past deeds and, and thus generously gave away his wealth uh, to found a university that eventually I became a beneficiary of. 
So I think he wouldn't mind my using his story to make a useful historical point. Let's talk a little bit about the current anti-corruption campaign. Uh, we're often discussing how much of it is truly anti-corruption and how much, of, how much of it is just political score settling. Um, and is there any way to kind of, you know, we often joke and try and say, well, it's 80-20, it's 60-40. How do you kind of parse that? It is a commonly asked question. And in the last chapter of the book, I focus on the anti-corruption campaign. And in that analysis, I looked at the career paths of all of the city party secretaries who were in office in 2011, so the year before Xi began his anti-corruption campaign. And then we look at what happened to their career paths over time. How many of them fell from office? The word fell is the Chinese term for investigated for corruption. Um, and through that analysis, the main question that I wanted to answer is, uh, what are the factors that most predicts the fall of a city leader? You know, is it, for example, uh, his lack of performance or is it his patronage ties with the higher levels? And the conclusion of that analysis is that performance does not matter at all. The single most important and powerful predictor is patronage ties. Whether the patron who appointed the city leader himself fell from office or was protected from investigation. So that is the basic finding. And it is an important finding for broader reasons because it tells us that in the period after Xi's anti-corruption campaign, the bureaucracy has moved away from being performance-centered to being patronage-centered. So personal patronage has become more important under Xi. And this is a departure from earlier decades where the Chinese bureaucracy has always been performance-oriented and therefore acquired the reputation of being a meritocracy. Right? So that is the key finding of that analysis. And then to come back to your question, is anti-corruption a serious effort of fighting corruption or is it just a purge? The answer is both. And it also varies by time and it varies by case. So one good example where corruption is obviously being used to silence dissent is the recent um, trial and imprisonment of the political dissident, Ren Zhiqiang. So he was alleged corruption and he was imprisoned. And in that instance, it's, it's pretty clear that corruption is being used to silence. But that's not to say that there hasn't been real, genuine, serious institutional efforts at fighting corruption. Because when she took over, the defining moment of his coming to office was corruption. And I think many people might not remember this, but he came to office in 2012 under extraordinary circumstances. Uh, it collided with the corruption scandal involving Bo Xilai, right, the fallen Chongqing party secretary. 
And so that is why, as soon as he became president, the first speech he gave to the Politburo, the, the thing that he emphasized was corruption. And he said, this is the one problem that will be an, ex an existential threat to our party. And therefore, he has made it a cornerstone of his legacy. If he really wanted to deal with corruption, wouldn't he engage in certain institutional changes? So a more open and transparent bidding process, a more open and transparent budgeting process, a freer media, an independent, you know, the United States relies on the media to uncover lots of corruption. Um, you know, an independent judiciary, you know, where the, you know, if it's a local judiciary, the local government is in control of the local judiciary. So the opportunity for the judiciary to undercover corruption when their salary is being paid by the corrupt is extremely limited. And those mm -hmm. institutional reforms would have shown a greater commitment uh, to fighting corruption than using this use of the Zhongji way. I completely agree that she, as soon as he took office and decided to launch the anti-corruption campaign, he chose to reject democratic bottom-up methods and instead used the top-down arm of the party. And a little bit of context here would be helpful. Um, in fact, in the years before Xi, uh, China had already been experimenting with public participation and transparency initiatives. And there were calls for um, public officials to declare their assets. And these reforms were um, gradual, but making progress. And there were prior research that found that they actually worked. They made people trust the government more and they enhanced compliance. So it was an encouraging move. Um, but when she came along, he pushed these reforms aside. So, and we don't hear of um, any more of the calls for transparent assets anymore. That's just one example. And his preference has always been top down across domains. So in anti-corruption, he applies a top-down approach. He uses the discipline committee. In the economy, he also prefers a status top-down approach. Uh, he favors state-owned enterprises. So I think you might say that it's, it's an extension of his overall preference for a top-down approach. But that has been the way he chose um, to fight corruption. It has been both extremely effective, but also has created a lot of problems, this new approach that he used. It's effective in the sense that it has really terrified corrupt officials. And some would argue that that is actually necessary because corruption had become so endemic. And that despite the transparency and public participation initiatives, um, not enough impact was being made to scare and alarm these corrupt officials. So um, he no doubt terrified them. But the side effect of that period of terror is that the bureaucracy has also become paralyzed as a result. This 
paralysis comes not only from the fear of being investigated for corruption, but it also comes from um, the kind of mounting amount of targets and demands that the central government has put on local officials in the past few years. So as a result, one new problem arose in the Chinese bureaucracy, which is called Lanzheng, which is literally translated as lazy governance. And uh, expressions of it include, you know, billions of dollars of investment funds that were not used. Governments would rather not spend and, and leave them unused. And so this is a brand new problem in China, because if anything, the problem in the Chinese bureaucracy has always been, been that local officials were too, too enthusiastic about promoting growth. And we now see the opposite uh, problem in action that became so serious that the state council actually called it out and tried to punish a few individuals as a way of warning uh, other officials not to. Question. This is actually an unfair question because I, I don't think we can know, but it, it's one I've often wrestled with. What percentage of GDP in China is actually related to corruption? So <laughs> I look at data, sometimes retail data, for instance, which you look at and go, wow, how can there be that much spending when this is what GDP is, well, it's because you're not taking into account that a lot of money is off the books and people are going into Gucci's and Ferragamo and these other things and making massive purchases of these, which then actually shows up in the retail data. Is there any way we can kind of figure that out? I honestly, having studied these topic, um, know that there is no way. <laughs> that you can accurately figure that out. So whenever I see the news media cite that, you know, 5% of the GDP goes to corruption, I really question how do you come up with that number? You know, I'm really baffled. Um, because first of all, it depends on what kind of corrupt activities you are talking about. So are you talking about embezzled funds? So embezzled funds, um, okay, once they are disclosed, you, you may actually know the amount of embezzled funds. But when it comes to bribery, that's actually very hard to measure, even in monetary value, because increasingly bribes don't come in the amount of cash. Right? They come in very sophisticated uh, in-kind forms. For instance, if, um, if a businessman wanted to bribe a corrupt official, he could give him the keys to a condominium without actually passing over the property to him. So how would you compute the monetary value of that transaction, right? So that's just a simple example. So when I add all of that up, I find that it's really hard, uh, impossible really, to put a monetary value on the amount of um, corruption. Uh, not to mention that corruption kind of has a spillover effect Right? And so how do you measure all of that? You didn't touch PLA corruption. I did not. Uh, corruption in the PLA was and still is serious. Um, a little bit of context might be helpful. I think in the 1980s and 1990s, it was particularly bad. And it got so bad that 
um, Zhurong, under the administration of Zhurongji and Jiang Zemin, they took it on. So from 1998 onwards, one of the things, one of the bold actions that they took was to divest businesses from the military. Um, I think so far, people give them credit for having succeeded on that front. Um, but there are still other forms of corruption going on, as we saw in the anti-corruption cases that were reviewed recently, which included a number of top uh, military officials. Yeah, and the pay for promotion corruption. Yes. That in order to get promoted, you, which I assume, is that also true in, the, in government? Um, paying for promotion is a very well-known corrupt problem. I did not um, count them specifically in this study, but um, that is known to be a very common problem. You talk about two issues. You, you choose two examples, the Bo Lai case and then the party secretary of Nanjing, who's less well-known as just two examples of corruption. And if I recollect right, you know, the, the Chinese ultimately accused Bo Lai of 22 million mm -hmm. RMB yes. of corruption, which in the course of a city the size of Chongqing is less than a rounding error. It's, yeah. it's, it's nothing. How much can we rely on the data? That is a very good question. Um, the way I would think about this um, is that contrary to popular opinion that all Chinese data is bad, China actually has an abundance of data, but of varying quality. It has a lot of data because of its communist system. Communist governments collect a lot of data. Um, but, the, but the quality is varying. And so it's beholden on the researcher to know the source and to know how to interpret it. Some can be trusted, and some cannot. So corruption is a good example. Um, there are some statements made by the official press that I would not take at face value. A good example is the amount of corrupt takings um, that you had just described in the case of Bo Xilai, right? Um, Bo Xilai was, was had allegedly taken about 21 million, which is roughly about 7 million US dollars. And as you said, that is only a rounding error. The other Chinese official, Ji Jianye, he's less well known outside of um, China, but within China, he was actually a very famous pro-growth official. And it was said that he took 1.6 million US dollars in bribes over the course of his career. And I would not take that at face value for the reasons that you've cited. I mean, $1.6 million is a lot for the average Chinese, but the CEO of a modest company would, would make that much in a year, right? And so I would be very surprised if over the course of his career, he made that amount of money. And, but we can still use their cases uh, to look at the process of corruption, the particular activities that they conducted. Those things we can still trust and they're still of value. Um, but there are other types of data on corruption that I think are useful and on the whole, we can trust. 
So one of my chapter uses data on the number of prosecution cases. And I think that that is on the whole reliable because that data is contained in a legalistic yearbook that's not meant for public consumption. Right? So no one except you know, people like me would go to read them. Um, and so, and they have been in place for, for many years. And so they provide a useful view of changes over time. What you see with the state media is when they tell you how many officials have been arrested for corruption, they do not quote the prosecution data. Instead, they give you the biggest possible number. So the official number is 1.5 million officials have been disciplined for corruption. And it's not because they make the number up, they just use the loosest definition, which is even if you're asked to drink a cup of tea, that's considered discipline, right? So, so they wanna give a big number because in a speech, you wanna give the impression that, look at this crackdown, you know, we've done so much. But when you look at the number of prosecuted cases, which means the case has gone through the entire investigation process and is actually brought to court, the number is much, much smaller. So that would give you some examples of how we read the data source and how we interpret it. I want to get to some audience questions. Andy Rothman asks, have you looked at how corruption differs among privately owned companies versus state-owned companies? That is a great question. Not specifically in this book, but one of the patterns that do come out is that in the cases involving the bribery of local government officials, those bribes almost entirely come from the private sector. Um, the state-owned enterprises, for good reasons, do not need to bribe their way to business opportunities. In fact, it's often the other way around. The uh, heads of the big state-owned enterprises uh, themselves become bribe takers because of the resources that they are in a position to give out. So Lai Xiaoming is one of the most notorious corrupt official who recently fell. He was the head of a state-owned lending company and um, he was investigated for corruption and he's being used as a poster child of the most corrupt official in China. Uh, John Du asked, does transactional bribery, bribery in effect exclude better alternatives and therefore harm the society in the long run? Absolutely. And I again wanted to stress that this book does not at all argue that corruption is quote unquote good. Even in China's case, what you see is high growth with tremendous policy distortions. And one of the clearest expression of that distortion is in the real estate market. So you can see that China has an abundance of luxury properties. So rich people can buy up a string of apartments and most of these apartments are empty, not because they're not sold, but because people don't live in them. But at the same time, you have tens of millions of regular Chinese people who cannot afford a house. And this kind of paradox and a misallocation of resources is linked deeply to corruption because real estate and land are the sectors where power is most easy to monetize. 
And so especially in the past, I would say 15 years, local officials have really invested in stimulating the real estate market, right? So by no means is this form of corruption quote unquote good. It stimulates commercial activities, but it creates a whole host of social problems and inequality. Yeah, which is actually Charlie Wong asks a very similar question, which is what is the impact of corruption on wealth inequality? Access payments can be viewed as a cost of doing business, but only the elite with resources can afford such access payments and the influence to keep it quiet. Outsiders may be shut out of opportunities leading to concentrated wealth and power. Absolutely. And that is why um, the two signature policies that she adopted when he became president is anti-corruption and poverty alleviation. And it makes sense because when he took office in 2012, China was at that time a very corrupt country as seen in the Bosilai corruption saga. It was also a very unequal country. I believe if I remember correctly, the Gini coefficient, which is the measure of inequality in that year, 2012, uh, China was actually slightly more unequal than the United States. And so you can imagine how unacceptable this is for a government that is nominally called the Communist Party. Um, and for that reason, when he took office, he took on the problem of corruption along with inequality. And his approach to fighting inequality is to say that he will eradicate all rural poverty by the year 2020. And for that reason, until this year, we have seen that he has not given up on this goal and he has put a lot of emphasis on uh, getting the bottom um, level of poverty uh, out of China. Uh, Mort Holberg actually asked, uh, hi Mort, uh, a related question. You mentioned the disadvantages of the anti-corruption campaign, impact on environment and on income distribution. I assume you've read Barbara Finnamore's book, Will China Save the Planet? Pointing in the opposite direction, China as leading the world in solar and other renewable energy development. Is that incorrect? Is that correct? Income inequality, isn't that what Dung forecast and permitted since a billion people can't get rich simultaneously? <laughs> Those are good questions. And the way I, I think I would answer it this way. Um, it is a very good thing for China to dedicate itself to climate action and to saving the environment. I think that if they could put their authoritarian strength to a good end, of course, that's a good thing. But as a political scientist and having studied the Chinese bureaucracy, I would say that we need to be realistic about what they can achieve by marshalling the great power of the state. The strength of China's mobilization power is also its weakness. So the strength is that when the Chinese leader says, we are going to do ABC, they put all their energies into ABC, right? So if it's poverty alleviation, then everyone does everything they need to do to get those households out of poverty. 
So if it's climate action, they'll do whatever it takes to meet those targets. But if you look at the actual process of implementation, and this happens across all policy arenas, it usually comes with side effects because the local officials will be focused on fulfilling the targets and they'll do whatever it takes to fulfill the targets. In the process, they usually create new problems. So poverty, poverty alleviation is one example. Um, local officials will take tens of thousands of families out of remote mountains and put them into towns. Um, and down the road, that can create new problems. You can also have problems of families who do not wish to be relocated, but nevertheless are forced to. And so that is the double-edged sword of China's powerful bureaucracy. It has ambitious goals. If it sets its mind on a particular end, it will achieve it, but it will achieve it through means that are often extreme. And these extreme measures that they take can in turn create new problems. This is an interesting one from Nick Borst over at Seafair Capital Partners. The regular transfer of power between generations of Chinese leaders was often an opportunity to root out corrupt network associated with the old leadership. With Xi Jinping's apparently indefinite hold on power, has this opportunity been lost? Will corruption within Xi's patronage network become permanently entrenched? It's a good question. I'm not so sure that in the past that leadership change was an opportunity to root out the predecessor. I actually see it quite differently. One of the reasons that the CCP has been able to maintain political stability is that it has an informal system of power sharing, right? So it has a collective leadership, it has institutionalized succession, and once you are in the club of the elders, there's a kind of informal norm that you will be protected and you will retain your privileges and that you may even get to have the opportunity to influence the selection of the successor. So I actually see the past practice as part of a profit of a power sharing system that enabled uh, stability, but also as a result, encourage crony capitalism. What Xi has done is that he has dismantled these norms, right? So he has dismantled the norm of limited tenure. He has also dismantled the norm of collective leadership. He has even dismantled the norm that um, retired leaders are basically immune from, from investigations. So Zhong Yongkang, for instance, was one of the highest leader who once served in the Politburo Standing Committee who was brought down for corruption. The significance of that action is that um, there was an implicit norm that if you are a party leader, you in a sense would be immune, but she has dismantled that norm. One implication going forward is that should she one day step down from office and a new leader were to come to office, does it mean that the new leader could also persecute Xi if he wanted to, 
right? Because that norm has already been dismantled previously. So when all of these norms have been dismantled, it creates a great deal of uncertainty. It looks secure now because she is the one in office with all of the power, but it opens up all kinds of questions about, you know, if you have a new leader, if there is political change, what form is it going to take? How is power going to be shared? Now, all of these are open questions. Which, of course, when you mention Zhou Yunkang, one thinks about Wen Jiabao, uh, also even more senior in the standing committee and mm -hmm. or premier. Why did they choose never to prosecute him? I mean, the, the, the New York Times stories were fairly compelling. I do not know. So as a researcher, I do not have scoop into <laughs> who, you know, who is corrupt at the highest level or, you know, inside scoop into their deals. Um, so I do not know. But we know that one of the reasons that uh, Zhou Yongkang was investigated was that he was rumored to be closely linked to Bo Xilai. That was one of the things that was widely discussed. So that could be one of the factors, but we do not, we never know for sure. When it comes to elite politics, it's always just full of Machiavellian intrigue and it's a black box and we wouldn't be able to really know what the true story is. What we can do is to try to understand the institutions and how the rules have changed. Yeah. The book doesn't really talk about the cultural aspects of this, that, you know, Chinese society has over centuries had more corruption, even though you make the, the analogy to the Gilded Age, it just, one thinks of it as more corruption. I even think about Hong Kong before, even under British rule, uh, before the creation of the ICAC. So the, the Anti-Corruption Commission in Hong Kong that has extraordinary powers to just, without warrant, without anything, we suspect you're corrupt. They, back during British rule, they could go into your office, seize your records, seize your documents, detain you. And it actually was incredibly successful in dealing with corruption in what was, a, even though the British were ruling it, what was a Chinese society. Taiwan has done a pretty good, though imperfect job. Singapore has done uh, a very good job. But so how much, how do we, what does it tell you? How, how do you deal with it in this culture, I guess is my question. It is popular, I understand, to make cultural arguments about corruption. Generally, I avoid cultural arguments because you kind of go into a dangerous zone of, of claiming that China is corrupt because it's China. And, and so I want to kind of avoid that kind of arguments. I think it's a, it's a slippery slope. And cultural arguments are also very hard, if not impossible, to prove. What I do find in my research is that the factors that shape corrupt behavior is very much and clearly driven by economic and political factors. So if you just focus on the structure of the economy and the structure of the politics, 
it already helps you to understand to a large extent why corruption took a particular form in China at particular times without needing to bring out the culture argument. So I'm not sure what culture adds to our understanding, except for potentially bringing us in the direction of saying, because China. The current economic policies are leading to more state participation in the economy, more party control over a variety of activities. Will that increase corruption? In my experience, when the state participates in the economy, in, in the economy, it gives the state an op the, 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 the officials an opportunity to engage in more corrupt activities. The one of the key arguments of my book, indeed, is that the root cause of corruption is the government having too much power over the economy. So as long as the government has a lot of power over the economy, there will be demand for their favors. But this is something that the Xi administration does not want to acknowledge, right? And instead, it wants to use um, investigation and crackdowns on corruption and his emphasis on ethics and integrity to control the bureaucracy. But you're absolutely right. As long as the government has a lot of say, there will be demand for their favors. I think another way to address your question is over the long term, in future, how will corruption evolve in China? And I think that's something that we will have to wait and see um, because the book ends around 2017 and we know that just in the last two years, so much change has happened in China and in the world. Um, there is no doubt that Chinese officials today are terrified about the anti-corruption campaign still. So I, I, I do believe that they're a lot more cautious than before. But to the extent that they continue to exercise so much power over the economy, what it might suggest is that corruption would migrate to different sectors and to different forms. So that is something that I would watch out for in the coming years. It used to be concentrated in land, real estate, uh, the banking sector and mining, but we'll have to see in the next few years whether it might migrate into new areas of the economy. Yeah, and we'll need to see. I, the Chinese have just announced the fifth plenum of the, of the Central Committee uh, on October 26th to 29th, which is gonna focus on economic policy. So we'll see if they will go back to the third plenum and kind of move towards economic reform or will they stay with the current direction of more state control? If they were to move back to the third plenum, I think, and you wrote this book or, or you do an update of the book 10 years from now, you'll yeah. see a decrease in, in corruption because access money would be less valuable um, with a more market-driven economy so yes. that would be uh, that would be very interesting it'll be that that'll be at the end of uh, next month so we'll we'll see what happens how does this affect u.s china relations um you mean the you For mean the, the book you mean how, yeah, the, 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 how the book relates to u.s china relations? Yeah, uh, yes so how does the corruption that you 
kind of describe in a different way from the way people have described it up to now? How should it affect the way we think about U.S.-China relations and what our policies should be going forward? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that corruption directly relates to U.S.-China relations, but I do think that a different way to think about um, what lesson to draw from the book is that I think in this Cold War climate, it is important to know that the U.S. and China are more alike than most people think. Because in this Cold War climate, we have had too much talk and discourse about how fundamentally different the U.S. and China are. And in particular, it's been very popular to use cultural arguments. And it comes out of both Beijing and Washington you know, with the claims that China has 5,000 years of history. If you want to understand China, you have to read Kongzi and Sunzi from 2,000 years ago. And what I'm trying to convey in this book is that you, know, you don't have to look 2,000 years ago. The most important point of Chinese history is the past 40 years, the Gilded Age. And if you understand China's Gilded Age and you see its similarities with America's Gilded Age, I think it helps the American public to see that the Chinese are not alien and exotic. In some ways, their circumstances are relatable. And I think we need more of such narratives because if we continue to drive the narrative that uh, China, the Chinese are exotic and different and even scary, it lays a dangerous foundation for feelings of enmity. And as soon as you realize that you can take stories from America's Gilded Age and fill in Chinese names and they make sense, you realize that perhaps we are similar under certain historical circumstances in certain ways. Uh, and that, a, in a different way, I hope, would, would actually provide understanding. That's actually, we should make that the clip for, for U.S.-China relations. It's a very articulate way of expressing how we need to change the narrative that's mm -hmm. currently prevailing. I think we have time for one last question, which is Ruth Kurzbauer's. Uh, so fascinating, thank you. In the U.S. Gilded Age-China comparison, who in China would be the muckraker that brought attention to corruption uh -huh. in any forms, including public life, and helped stimulate the good government move movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries? It is a great question. I think that in the years before Xi, investigative journalism in China, despite the constraints, made a great deal of progress. And um, newspapers such as Caixin made um, reports that really reviewed important problems in China. So Caixin, for instance, was the paper that reviewed the scandal about the poisonous milk powder, which yeah. in turn then forced the government to take a series of serious actions to deal with just lack of food safety in China. So uh, their efforts have you know, revealed scandals and pushed forward progressive reforms. 
So unfortunately, in the past few years, under a much tighter political environment, those opportunities for exposés have dramatically narrowed. So it would seem that the hope lies in economic reform. <laughs> the hope. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really difficult question, where the hope lies. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, maybe it's because I've worked on China for 40, uh, getting close to 50 years. Yeah. You know, I've seen China change so many times. I've seen so many cycles. I've seen tightening and loosening. I've seen mm -hmm. focus on market reform and then focus on the state sector. And I've seen it. And it, it's always, you know, it's never been linear. It's always been cyclical. But if you drew a line through the cycles, it would be up. And I think economic growth in China will have problems without market reform. And ultimately, you get some level of market reform, having market forces play a greater role. And that then spills over into the corruption area, that as market forces play a, a, a greater role, the ability for rent-seeking and other corrupt activities is, is diminished. Uh, I think the using the, as you have suggested, using the Zhongji Wei, the disciplinary commission, is a is a problematic way that yes. you really need exactly what you said you need Taishin to be able to report on stuff freely you need transparency and budgeting so we need to have local governments have transparent budgeting you need to have transparent tendering so when a government offers a tender you know we can see what the bids were so it basically removes the opportunity for corruption. We need an independent judiciary that, that's independent of the local government. So you need to restructure how uh, local judges are paid. There's a whole host of institutional reforms which mm -hmm. could be uh, instituted. The question that the leadership of China needs to decide is that may not strengthen uh, the party. It may in fact end a it could, they may see it as weakening the party. I see it as strengthening the party, that a more open, transparent party will have more support in the, the people of China and ultimately make their rule uh, more sustainable. But in, in fact, to wrap up the conversation, we might say that the key lesson that we can take from America's Gilded Age is that the accesses of the Gilded Age led up to the progressive era, which was a time of political, economic, administrative reforms that laid the foundation for America's rise into a modern capitalist superpower. And so I've, I've seen, I see China as having a structural break in 2012 with a new leader, and I see 2020 as another structural break. I think it's really a turning point in China where they would have to decide, are we going forward to a progressive era where we will make the necessary liberalization and changes to move forward or are we going backward? So I think we are at a historic moment and we'll have to see what decisions they make. And people would probably say the same in the United States. We're at, a historic, we're at a historic moment. <laughs> That is true.
you know, I can't thank you enough. Everybody, it's just a must read. China's Gilded Age, Gilded Age, Yuan Yuanang. Thank you so much. Thank you for being such a great public intellectual. Thank you for writing these books. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today. But it's, it's great to have you as part of the National Committee family. Thank you very much, everyone. And thank you to the National Committee. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Everybody for joining us. Bye now. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.